1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so excited about this show today because we have a guest who is not only chock full of amazing ideas, he's a lot of fun, too, and I can't wait to introduce him to you. Our guest today is Paul Wheaton, and he has a brand new book out called Building a Better World. In Your Own Backyard. And we are going to be talking with him about a multitude of ideas and solutions to all of the things that we talk about every week on Go Green Radio. So without further ado, welcome to Go Green Radio, Paul, and congrats on your new book.
2: Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, Clearly, you've read my book. um, And and please tell me, even if you're lying, (laughs) that it was wonderful to read and easy to read and uh, you couldn't put it down.
1: (laughs) That is a fact. And I had so much fun. I I mean, I I went through it in two sittings. And it's, you know, it's not a short book. But it was easy to get through. I had a blast. And what's fun is we really get a sense of your personality, um, which just makes, you know, I love all of my, my guests on Go Green Radio, but um, you've got such a positive outlook and you're so solutions-oriented, so I'm super stoked. Um, so I just want to level set our listeners a little bit because we all talk about shades of green and things like that, but you've got your own scale. So I'd love to have you explain the Wheaton Eco Scale.
2: Ooh, okay. Um, I needed a tool. Um, I had, uh, when, I, when I created it, uh, before I'd created it, there were a lot of uh, needs for this tool, and then I read an article that made it so I needed to make the tool now. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the article that I read was about a woman in Portland, Oregon, who wrote a column uh, about being green and trying to be green. Uh, and uh, she, uh, after one year, she was uh, stopping the article because she'd received death threats. Oh, and. I kind of felt like uh, that was, you know, I felt that that was wrong, and what could I do about it? And uh, I felt like the thing to do is to try to reach the people that were sending the death threats in whatever way I could and persuade them to, you know, don't don't do that. (laughs) Here's the thought: you (laughs) want the thing, but you're not going to get it doing that, okay? And uh, you're you're actually making things worse. So um, I, I. Basically, it's nothing more than a document. Um, I, it's, I called it the Wheaton Eco Scale um, because I felt like if I called it the Eco Scale, then I'd get a lot of people saying like, "Who, who are you to make the Eco Scale for all of us?" But if I put uh-huh. my name on it, then it's like I could make up any crazy thing I want, and everybody will be like, "Okay with that?" Um, <laughs> to give you a rough idea. 6 billion people at level 0, 1 billion at level 1, 100 million at level 2, 10 million at level 3, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get down to level 9, and there's 10 people. You get to level 10, and there's one person. Um, And then the idea is that people at level 0 are people that aren't really concerned about the environment. People at level 1 have some level of concern. They're just kind of getting started. People at level 2 are, like, doing a lot more. Um, and again, et cetera, et cetera. it goes you know on down to the person that's doing the most for the environment in the whole world. And uh, uh, the the importance of having the scale was to be able to make the the two critical observations that I would then convey to hopefully this person who I don't know and convince them to stop sending death threats because, and the focus is is that why were they sending death threats? Apparently, what was going on is that they were thinking that, hey, you writing that article over there, writing that column, you're not saying the things I want you to say in your column, and uh, and and then they kept writing and writing, and their language got uh, more extreme, and then finally ended up with death threats. You know, and and I'm kind of like, whoa.
1: So simmer down. The, the two,
2: the two observations in the scale are. Uh, anybody who's ahead of you seems super cool. Anybody that's a long ways ahead of you seems really crazy. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and the idea is that let's embrace that these are observations. And and then anybody behind you seems to be screwing everything up and needs to be hit with sticks or something. You know, the hostility. And And so basically that's what I thought was going on is that this person was Looking back and and uh, and saying, "You're screwing everything up because you're not as advanced as I am, and it's like so then the 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 thing that I suggest with the scale is to say that um, uh, rather than hitting people with sticks or any kind of hostility, that mm-hmm. uh, what would be better would be to uh, tell people at a certain level, not about things that are several levels ahead, which would seem crazy but just a few levels ahead or one level ahead or two levels ahead because that seems cool to them. Right. And so then that's, that's what, what you say. And so then therefore even, well, so that was the main mission that I had yeah. to scale, but it took off. Oh, it's I just looked at it the other day. It's It's been viewed by more than a quarter of a million people now.
1: Um Yep. And, and what's cool about it is, it's aspirational for everybody. There's not one person, except for the person at the top of the scale who's awesome, and I agree, um, that, that can't <laughs> find, you know, something to be inspired by and aspirational goals to set for themselves. And and I want to talk about some of those goals that we can set for ourselves because your book is just chock full. Of these great ideas, and I want our listeners to buy your book, so I don't want to give away the whole thing. But let's talk about <laughs> some of the. Too. Yeah, let's do this. So, but let's talk about some of the great ideas and kind of what their appetite for what they could get if they buy your book. Okay. So I really liked your perspective on local versus organic in chapter eleven. I thought it was a fresh perspective. So talk to us about your ideas on that.
2: So I want to say that a lot of the book is going to have things like this, where yeah. I have taken a position that is different from what we're all told is the the, the glorious, perfect position, and, um, and I need to because we need to move forward, and these positions that we've been told are the right thing, um, as much as they are the right thing, there's a, let's say there's a better thing, and, and it's like, so when I bring it up, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not going to listen to another thing this guy says because he's not saying the message that I've already learned to be true. Mm -hmm. And this is an excellent example. So we're talking about local versus organic. And uh, a lot of people are very keen on local, which is right, which is correct and great and wonderful. And the reason why, dominantly for people, is because of the petroleum footprint. Mm -hmm. And my book breaks down the, the three primary things we look at is the carbon footprint, the petroleum footprint, and the toxic footprint. And uh, so, one of them is petroleum footprint. So, people that are keen on local, they're worried about, they're they're focused on the petroleum footprint. As much as I want to be able to say that uh, I love local. Local is awesome. Local is wonderful. Local is great. Organic is better. Organic, I believe, organic is ten times better than local. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking at a petroleum footprint, you've got to keep in mind that non-organic systems basically use petroleum-based fertilizers. Yep. And then the next thing is, and this is going to be the part where a lot of people get really angry at me, <laughs> is that the amount of petroleum that's tied up and getting that food to you can be rather significant when it is local. It could even, and I'm going to even go so far as to say, it's probably more petroleum. And... Uh, Oh, I'm I'm going to. I need to apologize to all the people that are fuming and angry. All your listeners that are like, I don't know, <laughs> turning it off now. <laughs> and it's, and it's no like, way. You know, uh, bear with me. <laughs> yeah. And And it's like, uh, and I've I've helped out with a lot of farmers market stands, and, and and I've worked at a lot of other farms and things of that nature. And the bottom line is, is that to get that food to the farmers market, usually they're traveling a distance of 40 miles, and um, they'll they're going to fill a truck maybe a quarter of the way full, go into the farmer's market, sell half of it, and bring the rest back. Whereas the stuff that we're concerned about is is arriving in semi-trucks, in a rather full semi-truck, and it's going to be carrying a full load both ways. Yeah. And so I, it's like they're, and they're not doing it because they're thinking, like, I'm going to be eco. They're, they're doing it because they're trying to um, whittle down the amount of dollars they spend on diesel. And mm-hmm. so uh, they're trying to be extremely efficient that way. So, um, And I think that a lot of people don't understand just how much petroleum goes into conventional ag. Um, and so that's what we're kind of talking about, uh, organic. Exactly. Not using petroleum based fertilizers and pesticides and toxins and things of that nature uh, versus local, where how much petroleum was used to get this to me and so i I want to say that um and I, and I think I wrote this in the book, and that is that um uh, when it comes to organic versus local i I love local I love organic ten times more, and then If it's going to be organic and grown within two miles of my house, I love it ten times more than that. (laughs) And if it's grown in my own garden, I love it ten times more than that. (laughs) And if it's a permaculture system, a rich soil permaculture polyculture system, I love it ten times more than that.
1: Well, and see, what you've given us is scalability, you know, and and again, back to the Wheaton Eco Scale, what you've given us is, okay, here's good, better, best. Um, And I think that's, you know, where a lot of people either don't have the patience or haven't been exposed to the kind of thinking that you're presenting in this book. I mean, what you just talked about, and I know this because my husband is a global supply chain vice president, and so... Supply chain and logistics is pillow talk in my house. But what you just described was the efficiencies. Um, And this is true, true fact the, uh, the efficiencies of scale for supply chain, and a lot of people are not taking that into account when they're making their food choices, and I think that's really important, and that's why I loved your book because you dared to question the what the eco-chamber or the echo chamber, they're two of the same, um, say about these matters. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Paul Wheaton, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, News. Opinion. Opinion.
0: Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you all joined us today. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Paul Wheaton, and he has a brand new book out that you gotta get. You just gotta. Um, It's called Building a Better World in Your Backyard. And it's really fun to read. Not only is it full of great ideas, um, Paul's fun and amazing personality just comes right through and makes it a blast to read. And I, we were just talking about some food issues right before we went to break, Paul. And while we're on, on the subject of food, I want you to talk to us about VORP, V-O-R-P. I love this.
2: <laughs> I I, I, uh, I feel the need to create new words once in a while because I, I need them as a tool. I need a, to move forward forward. I need a, a foundation to stand on. And um, and I, and I want to start by saying I uh, deeply respect all vegans. I mean, they give up such delicious things to make for a better world, um, and oftentimes for their own betterment of health and things of that nature. Uh, at the same time, I'm a powerful advocate for, you know, choose a dietary path that's best for you. And a lot of times, it's not the vegan path, um, even though some people will still try to be vegans, even if it's making them sick. Um, I, I just think it's so fantastic. And, and in the book, I kind of cover a little bit about, like, if you're worried about being eco and you're going vegan for that reason, let's, I, can, I can make paths for you that are even better uh, for the environment than, than the uh, strictly vegan path. But the problem I was having was is the vegan path includes, um, and I don't want to mention brand names, so I'll just say Diet Cola and, um, questionably, cookies. <laughs> That's cookies right on the label, but uh, I don't know if they really are or not. It's more like, look what we found that we can make out of raw oil, <laughs> and, and you'll eat it. <laughs> so <clears throat> these so-called cookies and the diet cola is, is falls into the vegan world, and then on top of that, half of the vegans that I visit with those are primary components of what they eat. And, and it's like, uh, it, yeah. it upsets me deeply. And so clearly we need a, a better word, something that shows something more. And not only that, but I wanted to be able to, to show the things about foods not being processed as much. And, um, and then rather than saying a negative in a word, what, could, what would be a positive? I selected the word virgin foods, meaning foods that have not been modified. So an apple versus uh, something with very processed appleness in it. Um, so, so more towards that. Then, of course, the organic standard, which I think I mentioned in the chapter, like the organic standard is really quite weak, I think, but still, it's, it's a place. It, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a standard. Um, and then the R and the P. So we're talking about the V, O, and now the R and the P, rich soil and polyculture. Um, and so I believe that this makes for a far higher quality food. I think it makes for a food that's of such such incredibly high quality, it could be potentially the cure for many of the ailments that people suffer from. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I just think it's fun to say VORP.
1: It is fun to say VORP, and I would love to see VORP like embraced by the mega millions for school lunches, but that's another time, another show, but I love the, the, the categorization of the food that you've got for us. Now, we talk a lot about energy use um, on Go Green Radio. We've, we have covered a lot of different aspects of this topic, but you have some solutions that we've never covered show before. So I want you to talk to us about rock, rocket mass heaters, RMH.
2: Okay, this is the thing that I'm asked about the most, and um, over the years, I've got a quick little bumper sticker for you. Um, If uh, you live in Montana and you switch from electric heat to a rocket mass heater, you will reduce your carbon footprint as much as parking seven cars. All right, so... um, The key is is that we each have a carbon footprint of 30 tons. Each adult in the United States has a carbon footprint of 30 tons. Mm -hmm. Switching your car, your your standard gas car to a Tesla, will cut your carbon footprint by 2 tons. Um, And then, if you do the thing where you switch from electric heat in Montana to a rocket mass heater, that will reduce your carbon footprint by 29 tons.
1: Whoa. And,
2: and so when we're talking about, like, let's, let's talk about carbon footprint, the, I think the number one thing we really need to be looking at is how we heat our homes. Now, what is a rocket mass heater? And, and the idea is, is that, uh, uh, first of all, if you're going to heat with natural gas, that's being mined out of the ground. That's carbon that was locked down into the ground that we've brought to the surface, and it doesn't go back down into the ground. And if you're doing electricity, it's worse. And so um, I think it's about 50%. The carbon footprint for electric heat is about 50% greater than it is for natural gas. Hence the reason why I picked electric heat. Um, But the amazing thing is is that if you use wood heat, and granted, everybody right now is already getting their hackles up about the smoke, but I'm going to (laughs) totally fix that here in a second. And... uh, so the, the, the bizarre thing is, is that a you're burning trees, you know wood that's mm-hmm. already above the ground, right. and as part of our natural carbon cycle. So in a way, it's um, kind of a zero effect. But let's pretend it isn't. Let's pre- let's pretend we we only use trees from underground, and and uh, and we've mined the trees, and this is what we're going to use. Mm-hmm. If you use conventional, a conventional wood stove in your home to heat your home, then uh, your, your carbon footprint is about uh, a tenth that of uh, uh, natural gas. It just uses less. Part of it has mm-hmm. to do with the distance and other things involved. But anyway, you know, the key is, is that it um, uses less. But a rocket mass heater uses about one-tenth the wood of a conventional wood stove And while that might suggest that it puts out one-tenth of the smoke, it actually puts out about one-one-thousandth of the smoke. The smoke is similar to that of burning a candle. And the exhaust is pretty much nothing but uh, steam and carbon dioxide. Um, So this burns very cleanly. And for a lot of people, for most people, they heat their home all winter using nothing more than the sticks they picked up out of the yard the rest of the year. And rather than putting them in the green bin and sending them down. So it's like effectively, in a way, it's kind of like free heat.
1: That's amazing. Um, And I've never heard of these before. Never heard of (laughs) rocket receivers before. Surprise! I know, surprise! And you've got the plans for it in your book. Now, the thing is, okay, uh, obviously, this is not going to be the mass solution for absolutely everyone wherever they live. But this is... You know, this is a great solution for all the Californians who are moving to Montana. Bottom line, if nobody else can do it, for sure they can.
2: <laughs> well, there there is that. And I, I do think it, it will evolve to be a solution for almost everybody in time. Um, and there's, there's other systems, too, that I have for being... I mean, I'm, you read the book. Clearly, you read oh, the book. Yeah. So yeah. you saw that I had other solutions for how to dramatically reduce your heat bill while being more comfortable. And that's another thing, too. Within the book, I, I think I did a pretty damn good job of making it so that it isn't about sacrifice. So many books about mm-hmm. lowering your carbon footprint are about sacrifice. And, and I think we've focused super hard on only the things that do not have sacrifice or make your life more luxuriant and save you money rather than cost you money. Fair?
1: Fair. Absolutely fair. And the thing is, what I like about your book is so, not preachy. I mean, when you're talking about different solutions, I mean, you rocket mass heaters is an amazing solution for a lot of different, you know, applications. But you, again, going back to the Wheaton eco scale, you give us lots of options and an entry ramp from wherever we are now to where we want to get to on that eco scale. So, I love that. And you also talk about you know, how much energy heating water for our homes uses, and you have some great solutions in your book. Talk to us about those.
2: All right. Well, the first thing I got to do is, is again, I got to go and accept the stabs from some of your audience, and um, hopefully (laughs) I'll get them to pull the knives out of me before the end of it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> They're so nonviolent. So, That's the good news, Paul. We have, we have a great <laughs> audience. They're very warm, very loving. So you don't have to worry about that. They're open-minded and they like great ideas. So go ahead. Okay.
2: All right. All right. Good, 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 good. First thing, uh, please do not uh, turn your uh, electric heater down to 110. That is the perfect breeding temperature for Legionella bacteria, which will give you pneumonia, which during these days, pneumonia is the thing we should be very, very concerned mm-hmm. about. Yeah. So I know I can list uh, hundreds of stories where people uh, were suffering from repeated chronic pneumonia, and they simply turned the heat up on their hot water heater, and it went away. Really? So the, the next thing is, is by turning your hot water heater down to 110, it'll only save you about $3 per year. It it it's not so much about the temperature that's in there it's about how much hot water you use and so the savings are negligible mm-hmm. and so um uh, if you if you want to do if the next time you get out a new hot water heater get a smaller one that's going to mm-hmm. do more for you than than turning the the temperature so make the temperature be 140 okay mm-hmm. next up i'm going to um <clears throat> jump into a, a whole new line of thinking, and I don't know if you've covered this in your show before, but when I first heard about it, I didn't believe it. it. It took until I heard it from a dozen different people who were thoroughly enjoying it, and their lives were healthier and richer for it, and it has to do with, in a nutshell, this, the, the marketing that comes with shampoo mm-hmm. is uh, biased to you buying more shampoo, and it turns out that 99% of your body funk, um, and really maybe even 99.9% of your body funk, totally water-soluble. And the <laughs> stuff that's not water-soluble is stuff that you probably want to keep. want It's like, why does soap have lotions built into it? it? It takes your oils away. The function of soap is to take oils away. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, so we're going to take the oils away and replace it with oils. <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, that should be a clue right there uh, yeah. but alright so now I know that there's probably about 50 million people um, across the world that have gone down this path and they call it poo so not using <laughs> soap or shampoo in the shower and the reason why we bring this up when talking about hot water is because the number one use of hot water is for showers and bathing
1: uh huh
2: and then the average American shower is seven and a half minutes. But then when you switch over to Poulos, I, I know that my showers are a little over a minute now. I mean, wow. I get in there, I do all the cleaning. Pull, I, I shower every day. And I, you know, get out the washcloth and do a little scrubby scrub. And, um, and then I'm bored. There's nothing <laughs> left to do. It's not like I need to wet up, get soapy, rinse that off. Rinse it off two or three more times just to make sure you get all of it rinsed off. And then, you know, some people are going to like, now I'm going to add lubey things back onto me in order to right. make it so that I'm not all crispy.
1: Well, you know Paul- what, Paul? The Navy has a term for what you're doing. It's called a Navy shower. And when you're out on a ship, uh, you do not have you know, fresh water supplies for everybody to take a seven and a half minute shower. And so everybody gets wet, washes off. You know, they turn the water off, wash off, turn it back on, rinse at most it's a 20 second uh, evolution of water at most and so you know this is this is something that yeah I'm a former Navy gal myself and so this is something that you know we're pretty familiar with we're gonna take a quick quick break but when we come back we have so much more with Paul Wheaton so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this
0: News. News. Opinion. News. Opinion. News. Opinion. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you have tuned in. And just in case you've only now joined us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Paul Wheaton, and he is the author of a brand new book called Building a Better World in Your Backyard. And it's awesome, so get it. Um, And It is chock full of really innovative ideas, um, things that are outside the box, outside of the normal um, you know, here's the 10 things to do to go green. It's really, really fun to read. Um, so we're going to dive into something that I know is very near and dear to your heart, Paul, and that is permaculture. So for our listeners who don't even know what that is, what is permaculture and why is it better to eat food that's grown in a permaculture system?
2: I'm going to say that um, <clears throat> the number one thing would be, I want to pretend for a moment, that this food, the permaculture food, the permaculture food that I might grow has uh, within it, if you're eating this food instead of eating the, uh, let's just say organic, that uh, while organic is going to remove toxins, I want to add back in nutrients and that, let's say my food cures cancer. Now the big question is, is like, well, how can that be? And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, I, I kind of feel like one of the, I mean, we talked earlier about rich soil. If, if you're growing food in a really rich soil, in a beautiful, luxuriant soil, I think that the quality of food that's going to come out of it is going to be a higher quality. Mm-hmm. So I think we're okay with that, right? I don't need to explain that one. Yes, long.
1: you're good. Okay.
2: Yep. now the next thing that I think is a lot of people aren't going to be aware of is to grow in a polyculture. And so instead of having a field full of carrots, I'm going to have a carrot that's uh, grown with 20 other species. And uh, maybe even one of those species is a tree and a couple of shrubs and things like that. So there's this carrot out there that's growing in a symbiotic relationship with a bunch of other things. And so each plant, each growy in that area, has root exudates. It has things that it uh, has in excess and it exudes through its roots. And it's like there's a there's a two hour long thing there about root exudates. But let's <laughs> bebop along and just say okay. Then mm-hmm. the thing is, is like, well, what does the carrot need to be the ultimate carrot? And uh, I, I'm going to go with my answer, which is, I don't know. <laughs> the key is it, it has needs, and it's going to be particular about what it takes in to best meet its needs. It, it knows what it, it needs, and it, it'll take what it wants from the soil around it, including the root exudates from these other plants. And now you add mycelium to the soil, and it accelerates the exchange of the root, exudates by a factor of 10. And the, and the mycelium in the soil comes with your rich, untilled soil, loaded with organic matter, loaded with life. Mm-hmm. And, and now you've got, I believe, a far superior carrot.
1: Well, and it's made up of things that are around it, right? So, I mean, if we're putting a lot of toxic chemicals on it, if we're putting a lot of pesticides on it, I mean, it only stands to reason that it's going to absorb some of the environment around it, just like we do when we breathe in. And so the one thing that I think a lot of people are worried about with permaculture is that it's just for people who live on acres and acres of land. Is it is it really just sort of a a people with acreage, or can people who live in a city somehow participate in permaculture?
2: I would say that yeah, everybody who lives in a city can participate in permaculture. I mean, I I think that I'm doing a I'm I'm trying really hard to share permaculture ideas that are not necessarily in the garden. So if somebody lives in an apartment, mm-hmm. then I'm going to try and share these ideas. I mean. Earlier you said something about um, uh, being able to, to, to take these ideas and move forward. And I, and I kind of feel like what I'm trying to do is, even if you can't do a lot of this stuff, to at least become aware of it. Yeah. And that helps to fix things. That helps to move stuff forward. And, and who knows, the people that become aware of these things might find ways for them to do better inside of an apartment. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the food systems... Um, I would say that you're going to at least have to have some soil outdoors, and mm-hmm. uh, but in the city, there's a lot of people that have a, like a little garden or a little garden space, mm-hmm. and I want the to try the community and make gardens. It, and then there's yeah. that, yeah. I, so, I want to try and make it. In fact, I've, I've got a chapter in the book. I believe it's called uh, "Grow Twice as Much Food with One-Tenth the Effort" mm-hmm. uh, in, in your garden. And so I hope to try to make a uh, something that's very, very simple. And uh, permaculture. So I think permaculture is for everybody. Permaculture is for people that are in an apartment who have, uh, or or they have a small garden, or they have acres.
1: Hmm. Well, and and the <laughs> thing that I love about the way you discuss that all of these subjects is that it it all comes down for me to one thing, and that is mindfulness, being aware of where our food comes from, who's you know, working on it? Who's creating it? What role do we play in it? That food isn't just like, you know, something you think about five minutes after you feel a hunger pain and you drive through the drive through that, you know, we can't live without food. And we really need to be putting some effort and some energy into what we put in our mouths, what we spend our money on. And your approach is, is another way of looking at that kind of an issue. And you know, th- there's so many other things I want to get to because you're, like I said, your book is just chock full of ideas. And there was one line that just cracked me up. There were several lines in your book that cracked me up. Obviously <laughs> your personality is a hoot. I want to meet you in, in real life one of these days. Um, but the opening sentence of chapter 18 literally made me laugh out loud because I live around a lot of people who fit this description. This is what you write. Um, over the dec over the last few decades, I've met a lot of very lovely people who are freaky enthusiastic about native plants, <laughs> and like that's some of my neighbors actually. So, talk to us about the quote unquote dark side of native plant enthusiasm.
2: Oh, and this is where I lose most of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, most native plant organizations are a front for herbicide companies, and, um, and so I'm just going to come right out and say it, and the people that love native plants are going to hate me, and, and I, again, let's try and get past this. Um, the, the bottom line is, is that uh, uh, people that are like, advocating for native plants are <clears throat> not so much advocating for native plants as they are advocating against non-native plants. And then it's kind of like, okay, so how? Now that we've decided, we've we've uh, we've put up our rogues gallery of the plants we do not like. uh, What are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to get rid of them. How are we going to get rid of them? Well, of course, we're going to spray them. Well, how did we get that idea? Well, this uh, organization, which is owned by this organization, which is owned by this organization, which is owned by this herbicide company, uh, says that they'll give us money to uh, you know buy herbicides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did that all work out? And it's like, uh, we're a non-profit, so therefore, berber, burber burber. And, uh, and next thing you know, that's what's going on. Now, the thing that I'm at, ad- first of all, I want to embrace all native plants. Yay, native plants are great. And at the same time, there's all these other plants that I think are great too, but they're kind of like on the uh, icky list for native plant organizations. And so part of it is, is kind of like, well, okay, so y- Let's say that, uh, let's say you, Jill, are an advocate for native plants, and you're excited about it, and you're saying like, hey, when you grow your garden, don't grow those other things, grow only native plants. And my, my first thought is, is, hey, Jill, what do you eat? Like in the last 30 days, how much of what you ate was made, what came from native plants? And my guess is, is that your answer is going to be like zero to less than
1: 1%. Exactly. And
2: And the thing that I advocate is, is like, how about if you take the little bit of space that you have and grow a permaculture garden, so you're bringing in a lot of food, and then that will reduce the number of acres that farmers need by several acres, um, and uh, then the native stuff can do its thing over there, you know, far away from you, where because a lot of those native plants and native butterflies and native birds and native everything that you're trying to look out for... They don't like hanging out at your house anyway. Mm -hmm. They would prefer to be way, way, way far away from people. Now, of course, um, I've got a lot of other things to say about native plants, but I think that kind of gives you a quick idea, right?
1: Right, right. And I mean, you even go into like native when, native where, you know I mean? So that chapter is really, really fascinating. And, And it's one of the things that's great about the way you're book is organized is that, I mean, you can sit down and read a chapter in a very short amount of time and then contemplate it after your mind's been blown. So, I mean, I, I really want to emphasize <laughs> <laughs> to our listeners how, how interesting, you know, and, and how fun it is to read your book. Now, you know, until I read your book, Paul, I have to be honest, I felt like such a dummy when I came across this chapter, but I had never heard of a solar food dehydrator. And I would love for you to talk to us about these devices and some of the benefits of using them. I found it fascinating.
2: I think that for everything that we do that falls under the umbrella of solar power, whether it's um, photovoltaic cells or it's like hot water heaters or any of that stuff, I think the most efficient use of uh, solar power is with a solar food dehydrator. And, and so basically <clears throat> it's something that you build. Uh, the sun hits it. It moves the air uh, up into the, up into it, uh, and it rushes the air past a bunch of food that you've placed into it to be dried, and you know what a magnificent accessory for any garden. So, if you have an abundance of apricots or an abundance of plums or something like that, you just pop them open and lay them on trays and put it inside your uh, solar food dehydrator. And a day later, they're probably far drier. Maybe maybe it'll take two days, but still, now you've got um, um, an enormous amount of food. That is well preserved, possibly even lasting for three or four years.
1: Wow! So, that's crazy. That, I mean, that's that's amazing. So, I, I, you know, is it like, like what's it like? Is it chewy? Is it, I'm thinking candy when you said apricots and plums. What is it? What's it <laughs> taste like when you put it in your mouth?
2: <clears throat> I'm I'm sure that you've had like dried fruit before.
1: Yeah. Is it just that? Yeah.
2: I mean, there's wow. all kinds of different. Techniques of drying, on you know, and some people even do it with meat as well. Uh-huh. Um, and and of course, it started power. off as a food preservation technique. Yeah.
1: So there's, oh, that's ingenious.
2: The thing is, is like Native Americans, <clears throat> nearly all of their food in the winter time, most of their food in the wintertime was dried food. They, they They dry most everything, and and as much as you know, we like to can food and things like that. Uh, uh, drying food is actually easier and uh, um, as effective and some things I think some things taste even better when they've been dried
1: well and your book gives you know a really good explanation of how to create a solar food dehydrator we're going to take a quick break but don't go away folks when we come back we have more with Paul Wheaton right after this commercial break
0: streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We've been talking with Paul Wheaton, who is the author of a brand new book that I had a blast reading. It's called Building a Better World in Your Backyard. And it is chock full of ideas and solutions that we can do, we can implement in our own homes and backyards. And and even if we don't have a backyard, even for our city folks who may just have access to a community garden or a balcony, there are parts of this book that you can implement and things that you can, um, you know, embrace. And and it's really a fun read. So I want you to get out there and get uh, Building a Better World in Your Backyard. Paul, I want to ask you kind of a timely question because, you know, I'm in shelter in place where I'm at right now. A lot of people are. Do you feel like the kind of change that you're talking about in your book is attainable in a COVID-19 world? Do you think that the population is ready for this.
2: So I think that whether COVID-19 is uh, like, like we're going to be all um, doing things to fight it for the rest of our lives, or whether it's going to kind of sort of go away, whichever the case is, then I'm, I believe yes. I mean, I, I, I'm hoping that this book will end up under the brains of 100 million people or more. Um, or that maybe somebody who's a better writer than I am will write something stealing some of my ideas and and whatever. As long as the information gets out there, um, I think it will make a large difference. And and I know I've seen a lot of stuff that's kind of like as soon as we kind of get a bit past COVID-19, then, of course, climate change is like bearing down on us hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the longest time, we thought that 350 parts per million was going to be the maximum that we could um, uh, deal with without having everything topple over, and now we're way past that now. so. Um, and then I hear over and over and over again through more conventional media that it's like you know
1: yeah, and and that's why I also want to ask you why you chose to focus on personal change rather than political change because I, I will tell you we have a great mix of guests on Go Green Radio um, that that kind of are in both camps, but they're you know they have different reasons for that. What was behind your focus on? Personal change rather than political change
2: I felt like the personal change was not covered well enough, like nowhere really? near the the solutions being presented for things you could do yourself were very weak and and made almost no difference whatsoever mm-hmm. and uh, I remember when I saw Al Gore's movie for the first time and he talked about like you know the different things he suggested, I thought you know, come on, buddy, you could do better than that. Yeah, And uh, I just so I needed to get the word out there. So I tried a bunch of different venues for for more than a decade. And now I've written this book. And I hope that maybe this book will take off.
1: Well, and, and who did you have in mind, like wh- writing a book is, as you know, a really tough exercise in many ways. Um, it's, it takes a lot of self-discipline. It takes It's almost like pulling your brain out through your nostrils. And so you don't take on a project like that lightly. So when you were going through this, what did you think your audience, who did you think your audience was going to be? Who did you write for?
2: This is going to sound weird, but I wrote it for people that would not buy the book. <laughs> and so, I know that sounds bizarre, right? So, <clears throat> at some point in time, I uh, made the decision that uh, somebody, because I know that like when, when I worked in the corporate world decades ago, um, I remember at different places I worked, the boss would come in with, I, look, I just bought a stack of 100 of uh, who moved my cheese and, and gave everybody <laughs> in the company a copy of the book. And then other places, it was a different book. And everybody in the company got a copy of this book. And I kind of feel like, so I wrote the book with the idea of buying it by the stack. And so I've got like these deep, deep discounts on the book if you buy it by the dozen or more. And um, I want the, so I'm thinking, I wrote it with the idea that the person that receives the book um, did not buy it. And (laughs) um, they're going to thumb through it. And, and for, so I spent more time on the table of contents than all the rest of the book because I felt like a lot of people are going to look at the table of contents before deciding whether or not to proceed. Yes. And then I put a lot of time focusing on every page of the book. So if they thumb through it and they popped it open to a random page, it's like, all right, I've got about 12 seconds to, to hook this person. Whereas if a person's buying the book for themselves, they're going to read the whole book. Um, mm-hmm. But if a person's been given the book... It's like I've got a very limited window of time to get them hooked. And mm-hmm. um, I have received dozens of stories now from people that are telling me about, oh, I gave it uh, to my brother or I had it on my desk and my sister's cousin's whatever showed up and, and started uh, uh, reading it and couldn't put it down. And that's the thing I was shooting for because I'm hoping that it will go to uh, like $100 million. And I've got to say... If there's somebody who's willing to uh, distribute 100 million copies, I don't, I'll, I'll take nothing. As long as it gets in the hands of 100 million people, I'll, I'll take – give me zero monies. I'll, you can have it all.
1: If <laughs> it gets well, to
2: 100 million people.
1: And it's very um, summable. I know that's not a word. But what you just mentioned about summing through it um, – it is, it's very easy to do that. And and the ebook is also set up very well so that when you go through the table of contents, if you buy the ebook, then you can click on anything in the table of contents and it takes you right there. So you really clearly put a lot of thought into it. And I, I want to ask you, what do you think, you know, for somebody who's getting a hold of your book? whether they bought it, whether they received it. What do you think is actually going to motivate people to implement some of the solutions that you present in the book?
2: Money. <laughs> I, think, I think that nearly every solution in here will save you thousands of dollars. Well, I mean, like, not every solution will save thousands, but, but you know, if, if you take on a set, you're like, okay, I read through the book, and there's, like, you know, 80 different things in there. I'm going to do these seven. And it's kind of like, with those seven, you might save $1,000 whichever seven you picked. And and I think that it's a powerful motivator in our society. And it's like, and, and on top of that, the whole concept of adding luxuriance as well as saving you money. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think that the way to do it is is that you start doing the things in the book and then your next door neighbor's like, well, I want to save money and have luxuriance too. But mm-hmm. so it's, it's, I think that that's the way, that's the change. So a moment ago, you were talking about politics. I kind of think politics is like, I'm going to go and take a big club with a nail on the end of it and force my will onto others. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like this approach is I'm going to do it and I'm going to share these ideas with my friends and then in time the companies that are causing the most trouble will be defunded as people just don't give money anymore and Mm -hmm. they'll shrivel up and blow away and then all the problems that they were causing will go with them. That's my general strategy. Mm-hmm. But the of course, power I've got of the get, purse. I've got to get these bits and bobs into people's heads, and I've been giving this information away for free for uh, for decades. And uh, and it's kind of like, well, maybe if it's all bottled up in a pretty book, it'll it'll do well. And mm-hmm. I and I thank you for the the feedback about the um, the ebook and the physical book. I think that the audio book also we had a, we hired a professional to do that. And I think it turned out magnificently. Um, and so everything's been extremely well polished so that it hopefully and and this is this is the, the big theme. What what does a book need to be like if it's going to be consumed by a hundred million people instead of a thousand people? Mm-hmm. And we've already sold exactly. twenty thousand copies and I'm and I'm well. hoping that in a year, by the end of the year, can we hit a million? And then the year uh. after that can we hit ten million?
1: That's exciting. Congratulations. That's amazing. That's so awesome. Paul, I want to give you a chance in the final moments that we have left in the show. Uh, We've got a couple more minutes. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners?
2: Um, please put this stuff in your brain. You don't even have to do it. Um, the next thing is, is we have a thread out at my website, permies.com where uh, we're talking about how do we, what do we do now to get the book into the brains of a million people? Please help me. Uh, With your words, with your ideas, with your thoughts. It, It doesn't cost you anything. You know, what do we do to get this book into the brains of a million people? And, of course, the first step might be, like, do you want this book to be in the brain of a million? Like, do you want to be part of helping us to do that? And so first thing to do is, Maybe read it. <laughs> Come to your own conclusion. <laughs> and then, if you're thinking like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," this needs to get out. Then it's like, "Okay, well, what do we do next?" <laughs> so um, I'm going into new territory. I'm um, and so, how do I get it into uh, a million brains? I don't know. I'm trying things. Maybe the permes I sure there's thousands of a fun that social experiment. Of that know more
1: than Yeah, it's a fun social experiment too. And permes is. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's permie com, right? That's your website?
2: Correct. So it's for permaculture enthusiasts. They call yeah. themselves
1: permies. We're permies. permies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, permies. So if our listeners want to check out more, and you have so many more resources. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this is somebody who has done a three DVD set about permaculture gardening. He's done eight DVDs on rocket mass heaters and created, uh, you know, almost a couple hundred hours of video and and all kinds of great information snacking options for you. So get out on permies.com and check it out. Thank you, Paul, for being our guest today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.